ask that today you would speak to us, God, that we would understand our king and your kingdom, that we would understand uh, what you want to teach us about it. We would understand the importance of where we stand. We would understand the reality of who we are and what we bear in our sin nature. And God, that we can see that we are no longer dead, but we are alive in Christ. And God, I think about just what we sing, that Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by his death. Because of his death, we are able to have life and life more abundantly that we should be able to come awake, that, God, we would rise up inside, that your spirit would wake us up, that we would live not as dead people trapped by our sins and our transgressions, but, God, we would live as people who are alive, who have been forgiven, who have been redeemed, that we have purpose and meaning and value and we have hope, and that, God, you bring all of that to us. And so, God, today I pray that you would speak to us through the power of your word, that your spirit would move, that would revolve and and move around us, that you would change us from the inside out, that you would convict us where we need conviction, you would correct us where we need correcting, and that God, most of all, you would receive all the honor and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew. We're going to be starting a new series called The King and His Kingdom, Um, and we're going to be kind of given a a rough overview this morning of what Matthew unpacks or unleashes in this king and kingdom mentality. What we have to begin to understand is this, all right? In the book of Matthew, Matthew has a very specific way he's trying to communicate to his audience, and Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and so Matthew approaches things in a different way. Matthew is very harsh on the religious leaders. If you ever read the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, you're going to see that Matthew has nothing good to say about the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and things like that. They're more or less the problem in, in, in the book of Matthew. And Matthew is writing these, or this book, to Jewish people to understand. And I want you to begin to think about this. Have you ever flown in an airplane and looked out the window and seen the ground below and thought, hmm, it never looks like that when I'm down there. Like, I mean, you know, it's, it's clear when we fly from here to like out to Denver, you start off with green and trees and you see these clear marked areas where, hey, there's obviously a bunch of trees there. And then you'll see an area where there's a farmer or rancher and he's obviously had corn or something. And you can always tell when you're flying over Kansas because it's just kind of there. But have you ever flown into Denver? Okay, when you get to like western Kansas and into Denver, it turns brown. It's dry, it's high plains, but you can see these clear markings. You'll see circular areas where the rancher or farmer obviously waters because it's like a different color and then everything else is brown. All right, and, and so you begin to see from this 35,000 foot view, this overarching picture of what's taking place on the ground, but you're still far away from it, are you not? You, you can't see anything, or, or as you're flying into the airport, you see cars underneath, but you're not really down on that road. And so what we're gonna be seeing is really this idea of a 30,000 or 35,000 foot view of the patterns and dimensions that take place in scripture. And when we look at the 66 books of the Bible, that's oftentimes what we see is like this big, huge, overarching picture where we see some demarcations or some fields and things like that, but we don't understand everything that's going on. So we have this wide angle view 
of Scripture. And what I want to do over the next few weeks, over the next sermon series as we jump into this King and Kingdom, is to really look at how the Bible is one book inspired by the one author God with one supreme subject being Jesus Christ. But we have to begin to also see this, that all throughout the Bible, we see God working to establish his kingdom and man attempting to build their own kingdom. We have to begin to understand that, that all throughout the Bible, we see God working to establish his kingdom. In the meantime, man is attempting to build their own what? Kingdom. That's exactly what happens. That's why I find it funny that a lot of times people will say, well, I don't believe the God of the Bible because look at what happened in the Old Testament and how mean the people were. All the more reason to believe the God of the Bible. Because here's the reason why God sent Jesus Christ in the first place. Because everything in the Old Testament is just showing people's need for a Savior. They're showing their sin. They're showing their sin actions. They're showing their problems. They're showing their struggles. They're showing their difficulties. They're showing their temptations. They're showing their addictions. They show everything that they see. And what is funny is how God works in the lives of those individuals in the midst of their sin to build his kingdom. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks, I'm not going to promise how long we're going because right now I'm looking at 10 weeks. I don't normally do that, but we're, gonna, we're looking at possibly about 10 weeks of looking at the Bible or looking at Matthew, sorry, and we're going to evaluate the kingdom of God, the king and his kingdom. We're going to look at what Jesus says about the kingdom, and we're going to look at what that means and how it applies to us. Because a lot of times when we think a kingdom, we think of a king sitting on the throne, right? We think of everything he owns, everything he's over, everything he's in charge of, everything that is his property. And what's funny is oftentimes when we think about the king and his kingdom, we get to this big picture mentality where we think about Jesus and his kingdom and his priorities, and we don't understand everything that's going on. We don't understand the big picture that he has. I always think about it this way. When I think about a king sitting on the throne, the king is waiting for the right time usually to strike at his enemy and save his people. And what I want you to begin to understand is that is exactly what God has in store. Jesus, the king, is sitting on the throne waiting for the right time to strike at his enemy and save his people, which in reality has already started. So when we talk about the kingdom, when we talk about this idea, my goal in this series is to get a glimpse of the kingdom Jesus ushered in to get a glimpse of the kingdom that Jesus ushered in and the kingdom he teaches us about in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we begin to understand this kingdom, what I believe that we'll begin to understand is God's love for us, God's plan for us, and God's vision for his kingdom and what his kingdom would be like. And so here as we uh, approach this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a couple of verses here at the start and we're going to unpack this, but I want you to understand this, that in the in the Bible, or in the New Testament, the kingdom of God, the term the kingdom of God, occur, uh, or occurs 68 times in 10 different New Testament books. 68 times we see the kingdom of God occur in the New Testament. But in Matthew, listen to this, in Matthew alone, we'll see this term called the kingdom of heaven, which is really used synonymously, and, that, and here's the reason why, we're going to explain it, but it occurs 32 times only in the Gospel of Matthew. Doesn't occur anywhere else. 
And one of the reasons they say this is that Matthew uses the term the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God is because this. If you know anything about Jewish custom and culture, in order to say the name of God, they would not say it. They never said the name of God because they were so worried they would misuse the name or take the name of the Lord in vain, and so they would just not say it. So Matthew writing to a Jewish culture, Jewish customs, people who he knew did not want to offend or upset, and so he would say the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are synonymous. They're not different. They're both hand in hand. And so when we read in the gospel of Matthew where he says the kingdom of heaven, I want you to begin to understand that that is talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom that God came to establish. And so Matthew wrote to this Jewish audience and did not want to offend him because it doesn't do any good to offend, does it? If I'm trying to speak to somebody and all I'm going to do is go after them and try and offend them, what's going to happen to that person? Or what are they going to do? They're not going to listen. Matter of fact, they're probably going to walk away and say, you know what, you can just take a flying leap because I got no respect for you. So Matthew is writing this out so that we can begin to understand the king and his kingdom. He wants the Jewish people to understand the king and his kingdom, and here's the reason why. The Jewish people had a certain mentality and a certain thought that the king and his kingdom was going to be a certain way. They wanted a political ruler. They wanted a political deliverer as well as a military deliverer who was going to deliver them from the oppression that they faced under the Romans and everybody else across the world. So they're expecting a certain king. They're expecting a certain kingdom that's going to be established. The Jewish people are now going to sit in the throne of supremacy above everybody else. They're not going to be servants to Rome anymore. Rather, they were going to be supreme. And Jesus comes in and he completely turns the idea of the kingdom upside down. Because everything they expected is the opposite of what he did. And so that's what we're going to dig in. We're going to look at what Jesus says about the kingdom, what he calls us to, what we begin to understand. But I believe that we have to begin to identify some key things. Number one is this, and if you remember anything I want you to remember is that God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom that has already been established but is not complete yet. In scholarly or in studying everything, you'll hear these things. God's kingdom is an already not yet occurrence. That means it was established, but is not complete at this point in time. So it is an eternal kingdom that has already been established, but is not complete yet. And so I look at it this way, and I said this. It is like Jesus is sitting on the throne, waiting for the right right time to strike at his enemy and save his people. The enemy reality is this, that Jesus has already struck the blow to death. He has already struck the blow to sin by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. So that, that takes care of the sin issue. That takes care of the death issue. But there is somebody else or something else, this enemy, that he is still going to deal with at a later point in time that we're going to look at later on down the road in this sermon series. But we have to begin to understand that God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom that has already been established, but is not completed yet or is not yet complete. So here's the question. What are some keys to the kingdom? If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4, and then we're going to finish up with Matthew chapter 11. All right, we could spend weeks on this. I told you that the term the kingdom of heaven is, is in the, the gospel of Matthew 32 times. All right, we're not going to hit every one of them, we're going to hit some key ones. 
And I believe it's just kind of the idea of the systematic idea of how I want to teach it or how we want to explain it and understand how the kingdom of heaven works. So Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4, and then we're going to wrap up with Matthew chapter 11. But what are some of the keys to the kingdom? Number one is this, the key of repentance. Now listen to what happens. In Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says this, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, what's he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, all right? John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus Christ to come. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, it says that there would be one who would prepare the way. He's going to prepare the way for the Christ. As a matter of fact, somebody even came to John at one point and said, hey, are you the Messiah? And John's like, no, I'm not the Messiah. As a matter of fact, I can't even carry the thongs of the sandal of the one who is to come. And so John is preparing the way. But listen to what he says again. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. In order to be able to identify and understand the kingdom of heaven, John the Baptist lays out something that is vitally important for all of us to understand. And that is our proper place in the kingdom. Our proper standing in the kingdom. As a slave or a servant or even a peasant within a kingship, whether it was in Britain or anything else, if I walked into the presence of the king, I had to walk in with a proper positioning to acknowledge who he is. I didn't just walk in and go, yo, king, what's up, bro? How are you doing? I mean, not like they talk like that anyways. You didn't just walk in and be like, hey, man, what's going on? Hey, you, you, you want to hang out at my house tomorrow night? You know, the king was like, not that kind of guy. How did you approach the king? You would approach the king with respect and with reverence and with awe, knowing that that king at any time, listen, could cast me out of his presence, and that king at any time could reject me and throw me out of the kingdom. Now listen, I'm not talking about this about like in a losing your salvation mentality but it's an understanding of our proper place within the kingdom mindset in relationship with the king. Too many people approach it this way, that they are the king, and that if Jesus wants to get on board with them and their mentality and their ideas, then they're good. But the minute I'm asked to get on board with Jesus and acknowledge him as king of my life, whoa, hold on a second, you're asking way too much. What are some of the keys to the kingdom? Number one is the key to repentance because I have to understand my proper positioning. John the Baptist says it in Matthew chapter three, verse two. Listen to what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter four, verse 17, all right? It says in verse 12, I'm gonna even pick it up here. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, and he went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. So Jesus is this light that has dawned. And so Jesus then begins and he says that from this or from that time on, Jesus began to preach. What does he begin to preach? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is what? Near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is this idea that the kingdom at that point was not yet, but was to come. And what we have to begin to see is there's going to be a point where Jesus begins to establish this kingdom at that point in time. 
So they're saying it's near, it's near. John the Baptist, hey, it's near. You gotta be ready, you gotta repent. You gotta understand your positioning in the big picture of everything. Repentance is this idea of what? I'm going one way, I'm walking a certain way, and I'm turning around and going the opposite direction. I may believe something, I may say something, my words may be responding a certain way, but repentance is walking completely the opposite way. Repentance is the acknowledgement of our condition, our sin, and our standing before a holy, just, and righteous God. And you have to begin to understand that. Because we always want to use the Old Testament and say, see, that's why I would never follow the God of the Bible when the whole point of the Old Testament should show you the grace and mercy and forgiveness of the God of the Bible. And yet at the same time, listen, his justice and his righteousness and his ability to judge. You cannot separate the two things from each other. God is holy, God is righteous, God is just, God is gracious, God is merciful, and God is forgiving. And what the Old Testament does is just simply show us that we need a Savior and that Jesus died on the cross for us and therefore we can understand the keys to the kingdom. See, when a servant comes into the presence of the king, they respond with submission and respect and reverence and awe. And listen, I know we live in a world today right now that it seems like any sort of authority figure is thrown out the window, but let me understand, let me explain something to you. Whether you like it or not, there are authority figures in life, even in eternal life. And whether you choose to believe it or not, your belief doesn't make something true. You have to begin to understand and look at everything that's going on. And so when I get to the heart of the matter, a servant comes into the presence of the king and responds with submission. He responds with respect and reverence and awe. The servant does what the king demands or he is thrown out and cast into the dungeon. So we change our life as a result of the complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. Listen to me. When he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, that's Jesus. John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The idea of this is acknowledging your position in the relationship with the king. We like to look at what we offer, what we bring, But the real question is this, what do you truly bring to a relationship with Jesus Christ? From a biblical standpoint, here's what we hear over and over and over again. You bring nothing good. There is no one good, no, not one. All your righteousness is like filthy rags. You can't earn salvation by doing good deeds. We see those over and over consistently played throughout the gospel. And so we have to begin to understand our positioning. We are not good. We are not right. We are not just. We are not holy. The only way we are made that way is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So repentance is the key thing. Why? Because repentance, listen, is a true acknowledgement of my true position in Jesus Christ and turning from it. Do you get that picture? Repentance is acknowledging Don't lie to yourself because the only one you're lying to is you. Repentance is acknowledging your true position in relationship to the king. Everybody else already knows it. 
I mean, could you imagine a peasant or a pauper walking in to see the king? You know how they're dressed. If you've ever watched an old school medieval, you, the peasants coming in, it's obvious they're poor, they're dirty, maybe they're hungry and things, and they approach. Could you imagine if they approach and they're like, yeah, look at me, look what I bring to the king. What's everybody around in the court going to do? <laughs> look at this guy. He's completely clueless as to who he really is. We have to understand our positioning in relationship to the king. To understand the keys or to unlock the keys to the kingdom or to unlock and understand the kingdom, we have to understand the key of repentance and acknowledging our proper position in relationship with the king. That's number one. That's a key thing. It's a big one we have to understand. And remember, this is an already but not yet. So they're talking about the kingdom of heaven is near. It's an already, it's, it's coming, it's near, it's coming, here it is. And then Jesus comes. So key number two, what are some of the keys of the kingdom? Key number two is the key of God's coming. All throughout the Bible, God shows himself to his people throughout history. We talked about that with the Old Testament. He shows himself to deliver the people from bondage, but God also acts, acts throughout history as a judge to his people. When the people in the Old Testament violated the law, what did God do? What did they receive? Discipline, punishment. They reaped what they sowed. You ever get that picture? And the Bible's very clear about this, that you will reap what you sow. If I sow to feed the sin nature, then from the sin nature, I will reap. If I sow to feed the spirit, then from the spirit, I will reap. I reap what I sow. And so the key of God's coming is one of the things we have to begin to understand. Why? Because God's history is a redemptive history. When we talk about the keys to the kingdom, we have to begin to understand that the whole reason Jesus came was to redeem what was broken, what was lost, what was abused, what was sinful, and to make it holy and righteous. And so big picture, looking at it from the 35,000 foot view, is that when we look, or when people look at the Old Testament, they say the reason they don't believe is because of the wickedness of the people, all the more reason to believe. Why? Because that's the reason Jesus came. The Old Testament is literally this. When we talk about looking at a 35,000 foot view, the Old Testament is literally just a reason. It's pointing to why Jesus had to come. Everybody's like, well, all the sin and destruction, all the violence and the, the, the wars, and these were quote unquote God's people. Yes, but a lot of it was a result of their wickedness their lack of obedience, the fact that God being the righteous judge could not be in the presence of sinful men. So we begin to understand how God works throughout redemptive history to redeem people from their sins. So it's just a pointing to God's kingdom later on down the road. Listen to this quote, and I, I, I can't remember who said it, but because God has visited his people again and again in their history, he must finally come to them in the future to judge wickedness and to establish his kingdom. Israel's hope is thus rooted in history, or rather in the God who works in history. God will finally break into history in a glorious, the theophany, which is where Jesus comes, to establish his rule in all the earth. The source of the kingdom is not history itself, but God. God is the very source of the kingdom, and in everything we understand that God's coming is the reason why the kingdom is established. So remember, John the Baptist and Jesus are saying, Jesus, or, or repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus comes and guess what that establishes? 
The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is coming. Okay, that's what they're saying, John and Jesus. The kingdom is coming. Jesus comes. The kingdom is here. But listen, it's not complete. Even with Jesus' ascension, going back to Jesus, the kingdom is still not complete. Matter of fact, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this kingdom, Satan, who has authority over what's going on in the world right now. God's still sitting in control on the throne, but he has allowed Satan to test, just like he did with Job, to test what's going on, to test people's hearts. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, but Jesus, listen, has come to establish his kingdom, and it is going to happen. It will be completed eventually when Christ comes again. So the key, number one, to understanding or unlocking the kingdom is the key of repentance. Number two, the key of God's coming. That's why Jesus came. To begin to understand the kingdom, we have to understand that Jesus did come, and that's the beginning of the establishing of the kingdom. Number three, in order to understand what are some of the keys of the kingdom, number three is the key of God's power. If you have your Bibles, flip to Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 11. And we're going to read through this fairly quickly, and I want, to, I want to wrap up with this. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. You hear what he's saying? You know, we love to talk about Paul. But the reality is this. Paul's got nothing on John the Baptist. Because according to Jesus' own words, John the Baptist is the one that from an earthly standpoint, from a physical birth standpoint, there is no one greater than John the Baptist other than Jesus. No one greater than John the Baptist. But listen to what he says, and I love how he communicates this truth. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than who? What is Jesus saying? And here's the key to the kingdom. God's power Working in the life of sinful man makes he who is least in the kingdom of heaven greater than John the Baptist. Here's the reason why. John the Baptist's ministry was prior to Jesus' death on the cross, was prior to Jesus' ascension to heaven, and was prior to the filling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. So he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist as a result of Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus sending his spirit to fill every believer. You want to understand the keys to the kingdom, you have to begin to understand of God's power working in and through each and every believer because you and I are the least in the kingdom of heaven and yet we are greater than John the Baptist, not because of anything we bring, because of everything that God brings to the table. You have to begin to understand. You and I have to begin to comprehend. And listen, it's a comprehension that I don't think we're ever going to fully comprehend. But begin to comprehend where we are at, whose we are, where God is, and who God is. Because I'm, I'm telling you, one of the things that bothers me about today's culture, even in today's Christian circles, is this. We have a calloused, careless attitude and response to God. We don't have a proper understanding of our position 
and we don't have a proper understanding of God's authority and God's power. I remember one time when I first got into ministry, and this is going to sound harsh, but it was kind of one of those things. We had a number of conflicts in church, and I remember praying, I remember praying this, now, don't get on my bad list, so I might pray for you. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but I remember praying, God, you got to do whatever you got to do to get these people out of the way. If that means you got to strike some of them down, strike them down. And I know that sounds harsh, <laughs> okay? But what I'm talking about is this. Sometimes we can become the very thing that stops God's kingdom moving forward because we become so stuck in our ways thinking we're the ones that are the king. Remember, we try and establish sometimes our kingdom, and as a result, we hinder the kingdom because we think we're doing something for God when in reality we're being more of a problem. A proper understanding of our positioning in God's power always reveals the fact of whose we are and whose kingdom we're serving. The biggest thing we have to begin to understand is this kingdom is not yours. This kingdom is not mine. The kingdom we're looking for, the kingdom we are serving, the king that we serve is a king who is righteous and just, who loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross. And in the death on that cross, the shedding of his blood, he forgives us of our sins. He washes our sins away. As far as the east is from the west, they're never to be remembered, never to be reminded of. But you have to begin to understand your positioning. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. There is nothing we did other than to send Jesus to the cross. And while we were yet sinners, it says that Christ died for us. So the establishment of the kingdom is not based upon anything we've done. The establishment of the kingdom, the building of the kingdom is only based upon God's power by sending Jesus Christ, his son, to die. And that's the beginning point. So the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus is born. Jesus lives. Jesus dies. Guess what happens? The kingdom is now where? Here. That's why when we talk about eternal life, a lot of times we think about eternal life and we're like, yeah, later. Guess when eternal life starts? It starts now. And those who have passed away, those who have gone to sleep, as the Bible says, their eternal life is continuing if they believe and put their faith and trust in Christ. That's the beginning of understanding and unlocking the keys or unlocking the doors to the kingdom. We have to begin to acknowledge who we are. That's why we have to stand in repentance. We have to understand that we are a permanent dwelling place for God. Listen, as a result of the full work of Christ, the meaning of his death on the cross, his resurrection and ascension, we get to see and participate in God's kingdom. You get to be a subject to, you get to be a knight for, you get to be a person who defends God's kingdom, who works in God's kingdom, who invites people into the kingdom, who opens the gates so that people can see the truth and can understand. So we've once and for all been forgiven of sins. We have immediate access to God's presence and we have a permanent indwelling of the spirit of God, something that John never got to experience. So we understand God's power. And then the last one, what are some of the keys to the kingdom? It's the key of God's priority. Listen to verse 12 and following. 
From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. This is talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is carrying out the spirit of Elijah. He was the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? Now listen, this is not just talking about this generation here. I believe it's one of the things that ties our generations in to this whole thing. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here he is, a tax or a, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. The key to understanding this is the key of God's priority. Jesus Christ came not to establish the kingdom we think we would like to have, but to establish his kingdom, the kingdom we need. And so what it's going on and saying is, look, there are people who believed a certain kingdom was going to come about, and they called John the Baptist crazy, and the others called Jesus a friend of sinners, and there's no way this blasphemer could be the son of God. And so they expected something else when in reality Jesus comes and establishes the very kingdom. So the very people who were expecting a kingdom reject the kingdom that God wants to establish. Why? Because it's completely backwards from what they expected. See, they expected deliverance from Romans. Jesus rather delivers them from their sins. They expected life free from the dictates of slavery and Roman oppression. And Jesus says, I came that you would be free, that you may have life and life more abundantly in me. They expected they wouldn't die by persecution. They wouldn't die by crucifixion. They wouldn't be dead or killed by Roman soldiers. Instead, Jesus says, look, if they take your body, what's it matter? Because you live with me. You see, Jesus takes this kingdom mentality and turns it completely upside down. And when you read the gospel of Matthew, you're going to see that consistently. That what the people expected and oftentimes what we expect, Jesus is like, yeah, that's not the way it goes. This is my kingdom. And I establish it for all people. They just have to put their faith and trust in me. This is the simple thing. But usually what ends up happening, and this is what it's talking about when it says this. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. Listen, there are people who are going to call out and say, there's no way. It's not possible. There's no hope. Jesus is not the answer. God doesn't love us. You have no passion. Matter of fact, I'm even going to say this. One of the biggest struggles we have in our culture right now is this. We get our value, our purpose, and our meaning from what everybody else says about us when what everybody else says doesn't give, doesn't matter. What everybody else says doesn't mean anything because you are not identified by what other people say. I believe one of the biggest struggles we have, the reason why we have depression and discouragement and doubt and hatred and anger is because people are lashing out 
trying to find value and purpose and hope in things that will never amount to anything. Never. You can try and find value and purpose in drugs or alcohol. You can try and find value and purpose in your family. You can try and find value and purpose in church. But listen to me, the church is not the value and purpose. Jesus Christ is where you get your value and your purpose. That's why people can go to church and walk away from church and go, I never experienced any life change. Why? Because you look for fulfillment in the church when you can never find it in the church alone. You have to find it in, the, in Christ. So listen, when we understand the keys to the kingdom, we begin to understand God's priority. They were resisting the message of the king and attempting to usurp the throne of the king and establish their own. That's exactly what the religious leaders and people were doing. And it's exactly what goes on today. And the simple truth is also this. A lot of times, we're the ones who try and usurp the authority of God. Either we play God in somebody else's life or we think that we should have the power and authority and that God, you should just sit back and keep your mouth shut while I kind of take the reins. In order to understand our proper positioning, in order, listen, in order to celebrate, to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom, to be a part of the kingdom, You have to know the king, you have to follow the king, you have to be obedient to the king because you're never gonna succeed in the kingdom if you're disobedient to the king. Why? Because you're always at war with the king. The key to the kingdom is this, to know the king. As I know the king, as I love the king, as I follow the king, I experience the blessings the king offers. I get to experience life and life more abundantly. Regardless of what the world does to me, I know that my life cannot be taken because the king, he's got my back. He's not gonna let me down. And it may cost me my life physically, but it will not cost me my life. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, the King. The joyful message of forgiveness should be freely celebrated. It should be explored. It should be loved on. It shouldn't be dampened by legalistic restrictions. And most of us would never have worried about being characterized as a friend of a sinner because, look, we've come nowhere close to imitating what Jesus did when he talked about him being a friend of sinners. But listen to me when I say this. One of the greatest things you will ever experience is to know your proper place in the kingdom, your proper standing in the kingdom, and knowing that regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you're at, the king desires to know you The king loves you, the king paid the price for you, and the king is willing to do whatever it takes to let you know that his kingdom is priority, priority number one, but he wants you to be involved in his kingdom. Let's pray. God, sometimes these things can be heavy. It can be a 
heavy truth to understand or acknowledge, to even be truthful to ourselves. God, we know our standing, we know our position, we know our place. And yet we may not like it. Deep down inside, there may be that sin nature saying, who is he to tell me that I don't know my place in the kingdom? Who is he to lecture me about having a right standing or being above God? But God, we know, you know our hearts. You know our thoughts. You know our deep desires. And so God, I pray that just as we walk through this series, as we read through the Gospel of Matthew, as we begin to grow and understand your kingdom, God, that we would just begin to see a glimpse of that already but not yet kingdom, the kingdom that was established, a kingdom that we can look at and repent of our sins and walk into freely, justly, and rightly because Christ has made us righteous and holy. And so, God, I pray that as just we dig in, God, we would be able to understand our stance, our standing, and our position in the kingdom. That we can serve you with great passion, with the desire to follow you no matter the cost. And that, God, most of all, people will see the truth of your kingdom, will see the, the grace of Jesus Christ, the King, offered to those. And that, God, we can just be a small impact that as you work in and through us, you would build your kingdom around us. God, may you use our church in a great way to impact your kingdom. May your church, the bride here at Three Trails, be a bride that follows the groom wholeheartedly. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.